I just I was looking at everyone and you guys disappeared. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> What's up, everybody? I am Russ. This is Kyle. I uh, I do all the talking. He does everything else. Uh, <laughs> welcome back to the uh, Grime America uh, Contact at the Cabin uh, conference, Zoom conference. And uh, Randall will be here shortly, right? Right, Mike? Yes, Randall will be here shortly. I'm sorry, right. I'm working on something else. Randall, been, Randall I've, will be here when Randall gets here. Right, which is <laughs> shortly for Randall, which is yes. whenever Randall gets here. Randall Carlson time. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, uh, what do we got to talk about? I have space for the news. You guys want some space for the news? Geomagnetic, geomagnetic unrest, a large hole in the sun's atmosphere, is turning towards Earth and spewing a stream of solar wind in our direction. Estimated time of arrival, May 2nd. Minor geomagnetic storms are possible when the gaseous material arrives. Also, meteors from Halley's Comet. Earth is approaching a stream of debris from Halley's Comet, source of the annual ETA uh, Aquarids? Is that right? I don't know. Yeah. If forecasters are correct... What's that? Aquarids? Aquarids? (laughs) If forecasters are correct, the shower will peak on the nights of May 4th through 6th with as many as 40 meteors per hour. The best time to look is during the hours before sunrise when the constellation Aquarius is high in the southern sky. Nominally, May 5th will be the most active morning, but May 4th and May 6th should be good, too. Halley's stream of debris is wide and spreads the display over three full days. Can't find the constellation of Aquarius? You don't need to. Although Halley's meteors shoot out of Aquarius, they fly far across the sky. All you need to do is lie down under a dark, clear sky and look up. The shower should be obvious, even without the guidance of a star chart, which we all have on our phones anyway. (laughs) <laughs> That's Space Weather News from spaceweather.com, which is where we get all our Space Weather News. <laughs> I have a quick question about that. Okay. Is, that uh, is that seen from, from anywhere in North America kind of thing? Yeah, it should be anywhere on the planet during nighttime. We'll get those, uh, we'll get those meteors at any, at any point during those three days. So Yeah, because the whole planet... We're out, we're- we're out for CE5 on May the 4th. Be with you, so uh, we'll, we'll let you know if you see anything. <laughs> All right, awesome. Great. Looking forward to yeah, that. Yeah, so the, the whole planet is passing through the through the stream. Yeah. So as it spins, everybody everywhere is going to be able to see it. Yep. Does that give any more information on Halley's? Is there a, is there a latest estimate on the diameter of that? Oh, no, it doesn't say. Oh, Okay. Not in this one. I'm sure they have it somewhere. Also, as usual, folks, oh, yeah. um, maintenance. Technical discussion here. Uh, your mics will be typically muted as soon as you enter the meeting and should stay that way. If you have a question, you can use the raise hand function, which is in the participants window, or uh, mention in the chat that you have a question. And we can find a place to bring you in. Yeah, so if you just want to ask the question and you want to do it on mic, just use the raise hand function and we'll find a place to let you in. And some people can't find the raise hand function, so just say it in the chat. Yeah. You have a question. Um, If you don't want to actually come on and say the question, you can just type the question out in the chat window. Yeah. Uh, I'll be monitoring that. We did get some massive blocks of text, (laughs) (laughs) which is cool. But... uh, (laughs) If you really want to pose that to Randall when he's here, 
better that uh, you guys come on and do it yourselves. And I think Randall enjoys that interaction too. So. Yeah, yeah. We want to maximize interaction between everyone and Randall because he loves that, and so do we. We don't want to be a barrier. So, but the idea here, um, if in case, just in case anybody doesn't know, the idea here is we want to make these, these Zoom conferences like postable material. Basically, that's the that's the concept. So we do the hosting and moderating. Randall does most of the talking and instruction. The content. And content, yeah. He is responsible for content. And we just try to make it all go smoothly so that we can upload it as you know, audio, audio content that people can listen to without it being an enormous, uh, without it being chaotic. So that's the idea. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, I think Brad's got what I'm trying to say there. <laughs> <laughs> I might be guilty of that. <laughs> so yeah, um, any anything you guys want to shoot the breeze about? Let us know right now. We can maybe talk about some ancient sites. We could talk about uh, Graham Hancock's new book. Yeah, we just um, finished that. We just finished that one. Um, That's what I was going to ask if anybody got into reading it yet. Um, I just ordered mine from Barnes and Noble, so I get that extra chapter. So I ah. haven't started it yet. Well, so nice. Yeah. Perception. So. Well, we. Uh, I bought the um, the Kindle version with the Audible version, and we have both sort of listened to it while we're working, and we just finished it today. I still have some of the appendices to go through, but uh, the main content of the book is done. And uh, I really found the the whole section he did on the Carolina Bays, uh, Antonio Zamora's work, uh, the stuff with uh, with Randall and you. I mean, he mentions you guys in the in the book several times, and uh, specifically like that you. I didn't realize this, but you guys were I guess in the in the hotel room next door when Graham had his seizure. I didn't I didn't realize that, Brad. You guys were like right there. Yeah, I'm. I'm not sure. What what I can say about that, other than yeah, I was I was the first one to wake up and come to the aid because his wife was uh, screaming up and down the hall for help. Yeah, yeah so he said in the book that she turned him on his she turned him on his side and then went out there to wake you guys up. Basically, is what is what he said in the book. So yeah, I remember you mentioning it. I just didn't realize that you guys were right there. That's that's crazy. We had we had spent the entire day with them uh, leading up to that. So. Um, there was a lot of, you know, he just goes, goes, goes. I mean, he's just amazing the way he will dig into his work and just, you know, forget about sleep and forget about everything, you know, keep up with the social media and, you know, all he does just constantly was, was, was amazing. Um, so, so the fact that he wears himself out, you know, it finally caught up to him. was not a surprise, but, um, yeah, we had, we had a pretty amazing day. And uh, we were at the same hotel with them, so yeah, we were we were right right there when it when when it was on, ongoing, and uh, you know, waiting for the ambulance. And I went to the hospital and stayed with them in Santa. And well, yeah. ladies and gentlemen, Randall Carlson. <laughs> All right, <laughs> thanks. Hey, Randall the Vandal. <laughs> Barely punctual, Randall the yeah. Vandal. Yeah, this is the new punctual Randall the band. <laughs> well, you know what they say. You got to keep reinventing yourself. <laughs> is that what they say? I'm sure some people that say was, that. It is now. Did, kept reinventing himself. I think that was Madonna you're thinking of. <laughs> oh, okay. How's it going? Well, um, 
Welcome, Randall. Yeah. Hello, Brad. So is Alan on here? Listen, I've got some. I've got some requests. No, I'm going to rephrase that. I have some demands. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, start there. What you need? Well, we got to. Do we have a good sound system there to play music? Like, um, we get. I'll find out. Yeah, okay, I think because whenever I make an entrance, I have to have dramatic music. <laughs> I can sing. <laughs> um, I don't know. What's the name of that? Can you give us a sample? <laughs> Somebody needs to compose a Randall Carlson fanfare. Oh, thank you, Mike. <laughs> What's That's the name right. Of the, the, the Marshall March. Oh no, I, I got some. You know, I got some great tunes that are kind of kind of set the mood. Um, yeah, we're going to have all kinds of stuff. And is there, we got, have we got a way to play those tunes? That adds sure. that's when you're doing these kind of things. Yes, we're going to have an uh, audio-visual system set up. We, okay, great, great. Okay, an audio-visual system, perfect. And where, where is that? Is that in, that's in a, I presume like there's a, a central, like, great room or meeting room or a hall or something in there? I haven't really seen the floor plan of the building. There's a big living area. That we can use. You got a fireplace in it? <laughs> Man, <laughs> I got some homework, huh? I bet it does. I mean, it's. I'm sure it I got anything you want. 40. It's Colorado, so I would imagine. Yeah, a fireplace. Yeah, all is nice. stuff. See, when I'm not, when I start thinking about these things, I'm thinking about you know what what to to maximize the experience for the people that participate, so that they go tell their friends. Oh, I had an awesome three days or I had an awesome week and it really gets down sometimes to these little details like that. Like, you know, how it all, like, you know, having a bonfire outside, which I presume we're going to have, right. There's a fire pit outside, right. We're going to have all kinds of fire. If the authorities allow us, it's up to the forest service at the moment. I think it's a dry County in Carolina. That means something else, but out there it means no fires. But no, we're, no outdoor fires at all. We're bringing all the positive thoughts we can to this. So I'm not even worried about that shit. <laughs> we're gonna have fire. <laughs> have what? We're, gonna have, we're fire. gonna have fire. Fire. Okay. Yep, it's a done deal. And um, <laughs> see what else? So, is there a now this audiovisual system? Would we be able to review drone footage and things like that? Like if we go out and Brad flies his drone up over some canyon or something and then we come back, would we have a place where the group could sit down and and watch some of that drone footage? Or like if some people went one way one day and didn't go on a trip with us that they could see, well, this is where we went today, something like that. Is there a flat screen TV? Of course, yes. There is. Cool. Okay. We also have a drone I'm bringing. Okay. Uh, Yes. Wonderful. Yeah, and I have a GoPro. So also, um, <laughs> binoculars, add that to your list. Okay. We're going to be looking at a lot of big scenes where we're going to be looking at things off in the distance. be nice to have three or four sets of binoculars in the group. Cool. Yeah. I also have a small telescope I thought I was thinking about bringing. Sure. Absolutely. Cool. Nice. Sure. So what kind of sound system are we talking about? Because I have a sound system for, like, live performance, stuff like that, but it's pretty bulky. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was just thinking, you know, I'd bring some CDs with some, some good music on it. 
you know, anything from. Uh, so not mo- so much for presentations, but just more for media, just playing media. Yes. Okay. Yes. Gotcha. Right. And, you know, we might, uh, uh, you know, what kind of music do people like? I know what I like. Actually, I'm pretty eclectic. But, um, you know, I can go every, I can go all the way from Mozart to um, Tchaikovsky to Rimsky-Korsakov to Beethoven to Brahms to, um, yeah, I could make a big, long list of them. Um, and then I could also go Grateful Dead, Allman Brothers, CCR. Nice. You guys CCR fans? Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah, sir. Well, if you knew who CCR was, then you're probably a CCR fan, right? <laughs> That's right. Then, okay. We play some CCR. Well, yeah, we might want to do some tubling. Oh, yeah. Got to do some tubling. Okay. Um, tubling. Tubling. See, Mike here, we got Mike here. He, he doesn't. <laughs> Next lifetime, Mike. Next <laughs> lifetime. Okay. No, I'll explain chugling to you. <laughs> so, what else is on the list of demands? Yeah, I saw that piece of paper. <laughs> That's pretty much it. Oh, you know what else would be nice? A whiteboard. Ooh. Ooh. A yes. whiteboard. How big? I can convey a lot of information in a very short time drawing on a whiteboard. I did that a lot. That's part of my shtick is drawing on a whiteboard. How big? So if I got a whiteboard, huh, you know, five, six feet would be enough. You know, there's a standard size. I mean, I've worked on four foots, but I've also done in classrooms where the whole wall was a whiteboard, yeah. so I could start at one end and work my way to the other end. But yeah, so if it was four, five, or six, four would be the, the smallest. I mean, if you've got one four feet, a small group of people, but if you're talking about 20 or 25 people in a room, it would be good to have one five or six feet wide. And all I right. could bring my own uh, whiteboard markers and eraser and all of that, so, you know, if I need a there's a lot of times, you know, like I like to sketch things kind of in a way. It's almost like a sort of like a real jerky animation. I'll make a first sketch and show, OK, here's a fault line in the ground. I make a quick sketch. OK, here's the fault line. And here's here's a sheet flood going over the surface. OK, next one. Here's the, the water has percolated down into the fault line. And it takes me maybe 20 seconds or 30 seconds to make each sketch. So I'm going through that. See, and, OK, here's the one. Look, the next sketch, the water has has eroded the sides of the fault line, and it's now this wide. And then by the time I get to the end of the sketch, you're looking going to see, oh, so that's how a pedestal rock is formed. Yeah. You see? Chris, uh, Chris still, says he has a four-foot whiteboard. I would prefer actually to have really cool animation showing that, and I'm sure I will soon enough. But for now, I go, you know, do the old-fashioned way, how I used to do it for years, whiteboard. Awesome. So is that possible to get a whiteboard? Absolutely. Yeah, Chris Chris says he has a four-foot whiteboard he can bring. I mean, you know, we can order one on Amazon and have it shipped ship, to the address. Ship there, yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, listen, if we could get about a six-foot whiteboard. Let's do it. Let's do it. No problem. That'll add a, add a, and then see what I'll do is I'll work with, I'll have graphic images, slides, maybe some video of some of Brad's stuff. Because what I want to do is sort of like a pre- field briefing this is what we're going to go see this is what we're going to be looking at and here's an explanation so i can show this here now and you'll have a better understanding of you know when we're standing out there tomorrow looking at it yeah you see rather than trying to get people to visualize i mean it it, the two two approaches complement each other you know um so they don't all faint when we take them there they've got to break them in a little bit first (laughs) right that's kind of 
to prepare them psychologically. Right. Because, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll tell you. I mean, Brad can tell you stories about some of the greenhorns that we brought out in the field. And they're, um, yeah, you know, had basically emotional breakdowns. <laughs> they couldn't handle it. <laughs> that sounds awesome. <laughs> you know, people start bawling. You yeah. have to comfort them. Yeah. I think if, if at least one person doesn't faint, you haven't done your job right, right? You got to make them. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> we're, going, we're, we're shooting. Well, I'm sure we'll never get, but we're going for 100%. We want the entire group to be laid out on the ground, just like, yeah. Then we'll know we've, we've, we've arrived. We've, so. Well, I was planning that yesterday. So Brad and I have been really uh, looking at some map, doing some map work. Uh, a lot. We, I think we're coming up with a pretty awesome itinerary. And we're already realizing we probably aren't going to have enough time. We, is it possible to double this thing to a month? <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> I mean, I think we can sell the spots, right? You guys can all buy another month worth of uh, spots, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah, we've got some... Uh, we could get into it a little bit here if you want to. Yeah, Absolutely. Let's, let's okay. hear it. Have we started officially? We've yes. started officially, yeah. We're going. Oh, we're, oh man. Oh, geez. Yes, say hi to everybody. <laughs> yeah, I didn't realize we'd started. I thought, yeah, I thought this was all off camera still. So. <laughs> no, this is Otherwise, official. I would have been behaving myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's put it this way. I would have been trying to behave myself. Yeah. Uh, people love the inside baseball. Yeah. Okay, so this is official. I just is good to know because then I'll try to make sure that I I don't say something, off, you know, on the record that I would regret later. <laughs> Does yeah, that ever happen every to you? other week? Why well, stop now? <laughs> you missed you missed the space weather report. Yeah, I gave a space weather news report. Oh. We're holding back on the moon, so I, I don't know when we're going to go forth on the moon. But uh, if you didn't show up, they were going to they were going to give us some new info on the moon. Well, maybe not new. It's but probably not new. Entertain us. Well, spill, boys. What you got? <laughs> no you know, way. <laughs> the moon is the moon is one of my areas of interest. Yeah, we've heard you talk about it before, and uh, so of course it made us dig into it more. And, yeah, uh, fascinating. I mean, the it. moon is sort of the the key to unlocking the next phase of human existence. Absolutely. Yeah, the moon is hasn't quite yielded up all its secrets, and when it does, yeah, it's going to be a game changer. Uh, assuming we can survive till that point. Right. Are you are you talking like geologically speaking on the moon, perhaps, or what are we talking here? Um, <laughs> sorry. See, I've said too much already. Well, yeah. I know, I know that the, the the stuff you talked about, where you were just mentioning that no crater is deeper than what is it three, three about miles. three mile, three to four miles. That, yeah, that is fascinating, right there. That is very fascinating. Yeah, right. It doesn't matter and how it, wide it, it is. It, the point is, the point of the moon is, is everything about the moon. Is contradictory. Yeah. 
it completely doesn't make sense. So out of that, that complete lack of any, any rational sense for the moon's existence is really the key to the secret of the moon. That's it right there, because you have to tease out the fact that the moon is a low-density object, and yet somehow it's resistant to gigantic impacts that can't gouge a crater more than three or four miles deep. Yeah. And, and then also the fact that the resonance of the moon, what does that tell us? That tells us something about the structure of the moon, the architecture of the moon, the fact that it resonates for hours and hours after being struck. Right. The, the fact that these vibrations are being propagated through the moon's internal structure tells us something about the nature of that internal structure. And that's where it gets really very interesting. The other thing is the fact, of course, is the one-to-one um, -the -one spin orbit coupling, which is the right. locking of the moon's axial rotation to its uh, earthly or revolution, revolution about the earth, rotation about its internal axis. So those two periods are locked into perfect phase. So, but see, that tells us something else. That also tells us something about the internal structure of the moon. Because why should that be happening? Because here's the thing. Every structure in space, if you, if you accumulate enough mass, it will become a homogenous mass in the sense that from, uh, it will begin responding to exterior gravitational forces as a, as a geometric point. In other words, if you've got a homogeneously distributed mass, and it's homogeneously distributed, so like you start from its center of mass and you go to the surface in any direction, you'll, those lines will be uniform in terms of density and consistency of material homogenous, just like homogenized milk, right? So if you have a homogeneous mass from outside, its behavior is the same as a mass point. Yeah. If it's a homogeneous, spherical, radially symmetrical mass, you follow that homogeneous, radially symmetrical mass, right? So what it's telling us is the moon is not radially symmetrical. That's what it tells us in a nutshell right there. The moon is not radially symmetrical, and its internal material is not homogeneous. It's differentiated somehow, which which is consistent with the with the, the vibratory nature of, of the moon, the way it propagates vibrational waves through its internal mass. So you have this collection of these strange, inconsistent phenomena associated with the moon because the moon being low density, it should be a very pliable mass, right? Yeah. In the sense that it sits out there turning on its axis for millions of years, its mass should redistribute. In other words, it should be pliable enough, plastic, the word plastic enough, that it would distribute itself symmetrically about its rotational axis. Once it did that, once that mass was radially symmetrical, the moon would be suddenly unlocked. You see what I'm saying? Once, once that's all distributed, Earth's gravity field impinging upon the moon only sees a gravitational point, only a mass point. There's no way for Earth's gravity field to hold on to the moon and lock the two periods into phase. So what it's telling us is that the internal mass of the moon is not radially symmetrical and it is not homogeneous. But what what is it then? So that's where it gets very interesting because you have to come up with a very low density material yet high, high resistance yeah. to shock and impact. So how do you do that? See, so this is the way you can begin thinking about the moon because 
once we understand the internal structure of the moon, that is when it will begin to yield up the great secret. It seems to have like a like a like two centers of gravity, basically, is what we're talking about, right? That that's what allows there to be a lock. Two moments of inertia. Okay. Two moments of and, and, and Mike will help me demonstrate it here. Here, here we have. Let's see. I'm going to do a screen share here. Okay, maybe you can see this. Yeah, we can see it. Okay, I've got this. What is this, Mike? <laughs> it is what remains of a back scratcher. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought maybe it was some kind of a, a sex toy. <laughs> okay, so anyway, so it switches I'm screen. holding, okay. I'm holding this back scratcher here. This we can think of this as a, a as a line of force, right? And I'm holding it in one point. And now what I want, what I'm going to do is I'm going to have Mike hold this like I am up here in the screen so that everybody can see it. So here's one last point that coincides with a single moment of inertia. And Mike is holding it right now. What I want you to do, Mike, is I want you to provide, I'm going to try to rotate this thing. And I want you to uh, resist the, the attempt to rotate. Okay. Okay. So here we go. I want you to resist it now. Okay. Mike, that's pretty pathetic. <laughs> you got to do better than that. I want, come on now. Here, hold it, Mike. No, no, no. Yeah, just hold it. Get, hold it like this right there. Okay. Pinch, pinch it. Really good. Okay. Now you're going to hold it so I can hold it perpendicular parallel to the screen, Mike. Okay. So now I'm going to rotate it, and you're going to prevent me from rotating. Okay. Ready? Can't do it, Mike. <laughs> pathetic. <laughs> okay. Well, I tell you what. That was one moment of inertia. Now we're going to do two moments of inertia. Yeah. So come here. Come here. Okay, so hold it here with your other hand. Hold it down here. Now, Mike, <laughs> I want you to resist the turning. Resist. Okay, here we go. Hang on. Okay. Hey, better, Mike. All right, man. All right. You're not as pathetic as I thought you were. Okay, there we go. You see what that little demonstration did? That was one moment of inertia versus two moments of inertia. Two moments of inertia. The Earth's gravity field. Mike was standing in for Earth's gravity field. You see? You get it? So he's, here's the moon's. Here's, yeah, here's a, let's say here's an equatorial axis of the moon, right? So what it's telling us is that the center of mass of the moon isn't like this. It's like this. Yeah. You see? Beginning, are you beginning to get a picture in your mind? It seems to be a deficiency of mass within the moon, yet an excess of mass towards its exterior, towards its surface. Are you saying the moon is hollow? Now you told them. Yeah. Not, wait a minute. Not hollow. That's oversimplified. That's oversimplified. <laughs> I'm saying a low density interior. I'm not saying hollow. I'm saying a low density interior. So that's all we're going to talk about the moon for tonight. You can think about that and see what kind of scenario, what kind of an image, or what kind of a model you come up with. It's a moon base. And then next week you can tell me what kind of a, a model. And then maybe, maybe, let's see, we'll check the moon. What's the moon doing, Alan? It's made of cheese. <laughs> yeah, we have, a, we have an episode on our podcast where we talk about all that. We called it Spaceship Moonship because... Okay, cool. Yeah. So, have you guys ever, um, you guys like know any werewolves? <laughs> nope. Can't talk about that. Yeah. Okay. That's you guys a... never. So you guys haven't had any werewolves on your show. No, sir. 
Not that we are okay. aware of. Well, have you ever heard of lycanthropy? We have. Okay. You think that was all just made up for silly horror movies? No. I'd... It gets us into the whole shape-shifting thing. Yes. Yeah, which is interesting in itself. But what's interesting about this is this particular um, this tradition of shape-shifting is, and its association with the moon. And, and all of these little things, there's, there's all kinds of hints strewn all throughout, you know, traditional and pop and culture, traditional culture, traditional traditions, uh, uh, folklore, um, you know, uh, uh, mythology, uh, even children's tales, right? Where there seems to be, by whatever weird circumstance of, of, of uh, epistemology, we have these clues strewn everywhere about us. So, for example, we were talking about the internal structure of the moon, right? And, and I shouldn't be talking about it. I said, this, so this is the last thing I'm going to say, right? Now, I got, I, Saturday, I went to a wedding. My, uh, my niece got married, and I now have a new, a new nephew, uh, a nephew-in-law. So my, my niece got married. Who? Uh, so now they're, it's a, it's a new, newly married couple. Now they're just married. So what are they going to do now? They go on a honeymoon. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Hmm. Exactly. So where do you that? get honey? This is a riddle from the bees, right? Right. The bees' knees. The bees, they make the honey. Where do they store the honey? The hive. Why do they? Yeah, okay. So what is it about a beehive that makes it so suitable for bees <laughs> to store honey? Geometry. Well, yes, yeah, mm-hmm. geometry and and structural, structural, the engineering and the geometry. Yeah, because for the amount of material you'll use, think, think about this. Think about if you had a sphere, and think about how much how much surface area would you have? Let's say you took a a, a volleyball or or a bowling ball and hollowed it out, so it's like you know only an eighth inch thick. Right, so maybe like the lithosphere of the Earth thickness, right? And then you looked at how much surface area you would have inside that sphere, right? Now, what if you took that same sphere and filled it with a honeycomb? How much surface area would you have? Many, many, many times the surface area of the inside of the sphere. Yeah. You would now have that much. Now, so there's a ratio between surface area and volume that, that's crucial to the structure of a honeycomb. There's something else, too. The, the, the architecture of the honeycomb produces a high degree of stress resistance to mass. So in other words, a honeycomb can be very, very, very light material. The walls of the honeycomb itself are very fine material. And yet the structural integrity of that is very superior compared to the amount of mass that you would have. So... Obviously, you could you could build a honeycomb out of steel, and it would be profoundly strong. But for its its size to weight ratio, you see the size to weight ratio is very low. I mean, very high because it can have a big size and very low weight, and it can also have an, a a great deal of surface area. So those are some things you can ponder and think about, and I'll hmm. have plenty more clues after you've thought about those. <laughs> it's also interesting how it is. <clears throat> like the exact 
correct distance away that from the surface of the Earth, it perfectly occults the sun during a full yes. eclipse. Yes. That is, and the ratio there is like 400, isn't that right? 400 to 1, yeah, yeah. that's right. 400 to 1. So the sun is 400 times bigger than the moon in diameter, and it's 400 times further away. Right. On average, because, you know, the Earth's orbit varies a little bit between um, aphelion and, and perihelion, and the moon's orbit a little bit varies between perigee and apogee. In fact, perigee is about 221,000, and apogee is 252,000 miles. You can see it varies by roughly 25,000 miles. Yeah. So sometimes, you know, when the moon is at perigee, it's going to look, if you have a full moon, when the moon is at perigee, that's when you get these really big, you know, especially when they're coming up off of the horizon and they're so awesome and impressive and they look so big, you know, and other times it can be a little bit smaller. That's the difference, you know, when you get an annular eclipse or a total eclipse. See, if the moon's a little further away, it gets a little smaller, right? That leads to an annular eclipse where you can see a little ring of sunlight around the moon at, mm. at, at full occulting. Whereas a total solar eclipse, it completely obscures the solar disk. Yeah. But that little bit, that little bit of shifting actually is pretty damn important as it turns out. And it has a radius of roughly 1,080 miles, right? Isn't that right? Radius of about very close to 1,080 miles. Right. And it's associated with silver. And the, the atomic weight of silver is 108. And all that stuff just blows my mind. Like that. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a whole set of these really bizarre coincidences. Yes. Really, you know, I, that's kind of, see, to somebody walking the, the path of the mysteries and the quest for knowledge, those little coincidences are like the little, um, the little kernels of corn that are thrown along the pathway to let you, let you know that, ah, yes, okay, we're, we're, we're on the right path. On the right path. Somebody who went ahead of you threw that little kernel of corn down or broke the little branch down, some gave some little slight indication. So the pathway is strewn with these weird coincidences, and each one of these weird coincidences is like a clue. And you put enough of them together, and you know each one is like a little dot. Right, you get enough of those dots, you can start connecting the dots, and then pretty soon, all of a sudden, one day you make that final connection where you go, "Aha!" Did you all did connect the dots when you were a kid, right? Oh yeah. And you, there's a big chaos of dots, and you have no idea what it is, and then you start one, two, three, four, and then at some point, usually well before you get done, you figure, out, "Oh, that's a rabbit!" <laughs> right? So, at some point, you connect enough dots, and boom, you get an aha moment. And you go, oh, I see. along those lines, right? You've got the the 108 that plays in 108 Earth diameters or moon diameters is the distance. Yes, to the moon and 108 sun diameters is the distance from the sun to the Earth. Oh man, good I one, Brad. Did, did not know that. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 108. Well, and again, you know, this is it's close to the average. Right. But, but but it works real nice. 108 times the moon diameter puts it right into the average distance. 108 times the sun's diameter, right, 108 times 864,000 will be 92 million, something very close to 93 million. Now, the Earth's diameter to the sun's diameter is 109, so it's only one off. Hmm. But you see, we're dealing with the natural world, and the way I explain it is this way. As, as a builder, I'm always looking at blueprints, Right. Now, blueprints have everything defined and dimensioned down to really close. Like, here's 64 feet, 2 and 1 16th inch, right? 
okay, so I could build it to that, but depending on how good of a builder I am, if it's 62 feet and two feet, one sixteenth of an inch, if I miss that one sixteenth of an inch, who's going to notice? Right. Right now, if I miss a, an inch, well, I probably no one knows. If I miss a foot, somebody's, somebody might notice because all of a sudden you're going, hey, wait a second, there's not room for this bathtub in here, <laughs> right? Because you lost a foot somewhere, right? But, but here's the thing. There's the idealized world on the blueprint, and then there's the real world. And the real world is a facsimile of the blueprint. So the real world may not reflect the exact dimensions and proportions of the idealized blueprint, see? But the blueprint is the template. And what we're looking at here now is the template for worlds. In order to have a world that's a viable source for biological creation, you have to follow a certain template. There has to be a certain set of ratios and proportions and masses and materials arranged in a certain way. And if you don't arrange them in that precise way, the whole machine doesn't work, see? So you can't, if you, without the moon, we'd be, you see, without the moon, this is, we'd be slugs. We'd be trying to have a conference call, but we'd, it'd be hard because we wouldn't have any arms or anything because we'd be slugs, you see? So we'd be having a really tough time right now. You see, and we, you know, we might, and I, and personally, I don't know slug lingo, but I imagine slugs do have a way of communicating amongst themselves. But see, that's the point is that without the moon creating that intertidal zone, how do you get, how do you get material, how do you get life from the, the, the reservoir of the ocean up onto land? And if the idea is to get sentient life, you see, in order for us to have the brains we've got, we have to be vertical, right? We have to we have to have upright spines because our cerebral structure is part of our whole upright posture, right? So life, in order to get to a twelve hundred cubic centimeter brain, it has to go from this orientation to this orientation. Without the moon, you're never going to get from this to this. There's going to be no intertidal zone. There's going to be no way to get from the ocean to the land. So, well, maybe the, the worst case then is no moon, we'd all be fish, or who knows, maybe somebody would be an eel, or somebody else would be an octopus. But see, the thing is, then you get into the mass of the Earth, and it would not take much of an increase in mass to where, basically, yeah, we'd all be just pancake creatures living on the surface of a, of a lot of gravity. And again, you wouldn't get the upright posture. If the... Uh, mass of the Earth was significantly less, and I'm not talking about that much, 10 to 15% perhaps, all the atmosphere is going to get lost because there's not enough gravity here to hold it in. Without the, the, the outer arrangement of the outer planets, there would have been no way to deliver the comets from the, the outer zone of the solar system in the cometary reservoir. Without, without those outer planets arranged exactly as they are, you could not deliver the, the, the nuclide-bearing comets from the outer zone of the solar system in the Kuiper disk to the inner solar system where they could see the planetary matrix. See, we could go on and on and on. You get my point, though. My point is, is that we happen to be occupying a system which is perfectly set up for us to be here occupying. Right. How did it get that way? So we're, we basically got only two options. It's some kind of an inexplicable cosmic accident with no meaning, or there's some kind of intelligence to the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. I'm inclined to the latter myself. 
Right. But see, that, of course, all that does is open up more levels of profundity. We have a question here, Randall, from Chip. You want to come on and ask your question, buddy? Yeah, Chip, come on, man. How's it going? Hey, Randall. Good evening. Yeah, good to see you. Nice to have you. Hey, man. Good to see you. I got a question about uh, moons. Does that so so the relationship of the moon to Earth? Uh, it creates a solar eclipse because it's four hundred times smaller than the sun. It's four hundred times closer. Does that kind of relationship exist on other planets in our solar system? So you'd see a lunar eclipse from no, 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 not no other planet in our solar system. No, no, that's okay. our 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 Earth Moon, the Earth satellite system, Earth Moon satellite system is completely unique in our solar system. Now. Are we are we going to discover such things? Well, I would say that if we're you know in the exoplanetary community that are looking at other stars as being potential suns that could have Earth-like planets, if there was going to be any issue of there being higher life of any kind on that planet, it's almost certain it would have to have a moon very similar to our own. But at this point, I don't think we've been able to look at these nearby solar systems with enough detail to determine that. So far, I think what we've seen is that we, we've seen planets on other stars, but they're not planets that could be conducive to life as we know it. You know, I think the last one, was, what was it, a few years ago, and it was probably the size of Jupiter, and it was also pretty darn close to its, to its, um, to its star. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was probably super dense and super hot. And neither you or I would probably last more than a a, a nanosecond if we were suddenly transplanted to that planetary surface. (laughs) So that's not much of an answer, but that's all I got. And I think that's probably about all anybody else has got at this point. No, that that answers it. Thank you, Randall. Uh, You're welcome, Chris. Randall, when you isn't it? I've always had this question: the doesn't the moon sort of keep the Earth uh, stable? Yes. Well, stable, but it like hot in the middle. Like would, like would we have lost our magnetic well, field if well, we didn't have the moon? The moon keep it? is probably is almost certainly helping to to generate a geomagnetic field. Yeah, um, that's not something I studied specifically yet, but yeah, there's almost certainly a relation. For one thing, the moon's acts like a um, the Earth Moon system. You can almost think of as a flywheel that the two are acting gravitationally mm-hmm. as a single system. And the moon helps to keep the Earth stable because, you know, the Earth has a bulge around its equator. And the moon being here helps. It, it creates it. It's more difficult for this to happen. See, if you took the moon away, this could happen a lot easier. Mm. But then you put the moon out here and it's the, it, the moon is the main influence on the Earth, dragging the Earth around through that 25,000, 26,000 year processional cycle. Of course, the sun is a part of it, and all the planets are. They're all acting in unity, and in the sum total of all of those forces is the precessional cycle of the Earth. If that is, in fact. Yeah, I've just like, I've noticed, you know, with all the Mars stuff that, like, Mars has lost, it doesn't have a magnetic field to speak of, really. And it doesn't really have a, it doesn't have a good, it doesn't, it has two moons, but they're, my dad calls them potatoes. Like, they're little tiny, they're not even big enough to become spheres. So right. it doesn't have a moon that's constantly kneading it and, and squishing it and pulling it, right, right, which right. would keep it warm in the middle, which would keep it having a dynamic system causing. Yeah, that makes field. sense. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, and then so then you lose your you lose your magnetosphere, and then you and then the sun blows your atmosphere away. Basically, is the yeah. idea. 
and then we're fucked. Yeah, that would be. Excuse my French. <laughs> That's French, right? We're live. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, here's the thing. You know, I used to take French, and one of the things I kept learning was I'd learn all these new words, and I'd go, "Damn, that sounds just like one of our swear words." <laughs> and it. Yep. And so then I realized, okay, so that's where that comes from. Right. You know, <laughs> Excuse my French. Excuse me. <laughs> if you're over in French and you start using about six or seven or eight of our cuss words, they'll know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> Except that for them, it's not cuss words. Right. <laughs> and if there's anybody French-speaking listening, I think they'll know what I'm talking about if they're bilingual and can speak English. So, uh, uh, okay, so we've covered sound. We've got a flat screen TV. We'll have a whiteboard. Um, we'll have two drones. This is awesome. I've suggested, you know, if anybody has binoculars, bring some binoculars because we're going to be like, we'll be standing on the edge of a cliff looking on the other side of the canyon and we'll be seeing features over there that could be, it could be a, a, a cliff dwelling. It could be a geological outcrop that we can use our binoculars to get a better look. So, awesome. hope you guys got any. Uh, what else? Yeah, your telescope is great. Um, I don't know what else to think of. I'm, you know, I'm going to bring some percussion instruments. We'll do some wild pagan drumming at night. Fantastic. Yeah, we're bringing a percussion instrument, and Kyle's going to have a guitar. Um, Who is? Kyle's going to bring a guitar. Oh, Kyle. Okay, yeah. Kyle. Kyle. I'm just going to bring hey. it, though. <laughs> Not playing it. <laughs> just oh, going to hang it up on the wall. And... <laughs> so what kind of music do you play, Kyle? Um, I, I like it all, man. Same, oh, okay. but mo- mostly it's you know sort of rock That's and roll based. That's such a weasel answer. Come on. I like to play jazz. I like blues. Sure. I, I, even, blues. I even play a few country western songs. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I there's... I get into all of that to some extent. We know we know some uh, CCR. We know some uh, love classic rock. Yeah, we love so. old classic rock. So, how about Born to Be Wild? I know that one. Yeah, we know it. Good, that's my theme song. So. <laughs> all right, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so, are you a werewolf? <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about like let, let me let me put it to you this way. Okay, this, I'm put it to you this way. The name Randall is a contraction of the name Randolph. <laughs> and the name Randolph is, is a, an alteration of the original name, which was Rand Wolf. Mm. <laughs> okay? So awesome. we just leave it at that. All right. So it, it's in my lineage. It's in my genetic lineage. It's also very close yes. to Gandalf, which is, you know... You yeah, got- see, so, for example, <laughs> I could shave my beard off, and in the next full moon, it'll come back in one day. <laughs> <laughs> That's hardcore. <laughs> We're going to rewrite the uh, Led Zeppelin song to Randallon <laughs> instead of Rambalon. Yeah. <laughs> Randallon. Yeah. Randallon! <laughs> I can hear that now. Yeah, yeah. yeah it would work, right? It's going to be great. <laughs> hey, Randall, don't they, don't they say there's some kind of genetic similarities between the wolf and the dolphin? And there are I've never heard that, Brandon. This is yeah. new. Now this is new stuff for me. Well, we we actually spoke about this when we the first time we ever met, and I had my brother with me, and his name oh. is Randolph. He goes by Randy, 
and we we talked about this a little bit, but that's right. Now I remember. I remember now. Yeah, <laughs> there there's uh, there are wolves that live right along the coastline. Uh, I believe in Alaska, and they only hunt through fishing. So they swim out and catch their all of their prey. Wow. Yeah, I've never heard of that. That's awesome. That's totally new for me. And what? What kind of wolves? I don't know. I'll, I'll gray, have to look. Gray, just gray wolves or timber wolves? I, I, or? I believe there's some kind of um, there's some kind of uh, smaller wolf species, but they were known for having like extra webbing even in their paws, which wolves. Oh. Now- Wolves naturally can swim really long distances because of the webbing in their paws. Okay, that would explain that webbing in my. <laughs> wondering what that what caused maybe, that. Maybe it's all about some kind of aquatic wolf. Dolphins. I think they're called wolfins. Wolfins. <laughs> <laughs> so, Brandon, have you ever heard of dire wolves? I have. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you, yeah. Back last night in uh, Game of Thrones. <laughs> For real? <laughs> yeah, it was epic. They, I, they, oh, they do have dire wolves in there, don't they? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I knew somebody was going to eventually steal my idea. <laughs> I thought, you know, they need to, somebody needs to put these dire wolves in a, in a movie or a TV show, but and they finally did it. I mean, that's probably where yeah, the idea of Fenris probably comes from... Uh, you know, dire- right. Very, yeah, very, that's possible. Yeah. Because, listen, we, our ancestors coexisted with dire wolves. And dire wolves would have been a, a formidable opponent. You know, if you had a if you had a pack of dire wolves on your trail, you were probably toast. You think they would have been trainable? I don't know, but I presume somebody, I mean, yeah, maybe. Yeah, be well, you know what? Wouldn't it be interesting to try to, to do some kind of genetic study on dogs and see if, of course, I don't know. Do we have it? I don't know this. Do we have any genetic material from dire wolves? That's a good. Question. I don't know. Romulus and Remus were said to have been raised by a wolf. I wonder if that's yes. Like, yeah, that's right. Yes, Romulus and Remus, and they were they suckled at the at the wolf. That, right. and that's where the the, the um, lycanthropy comes from. Was it the king? Yeah, lichen, think, yeah. The king lichen that um, that uh, what was it? He he fed. What was? How did that story go again? He 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 was. That was the beginning of werewolfy wolfery. There's a Greek myth that he fed. Who did he he fed somebody to um, Zeus? Right. I can't remember. I just remember okay. the Romulus and Remus. That right. Who, who's our uh, look up lichen? I'll try it's to look interesting. It up. I, okay, it so I found out this is maybe a bit of a change, but uh, Brandon brought up dolphins. I found out that there is an Amazon River dolphin that's pink, freshwater. Pink. Yeah, they're called pink dolphins. The Amazon River dolphin. Oh, oh the, the dolphin is pink. Yes, they are actually pink. River. It's called the Boto Buefo or pink river dolphin. Species of toothed whale classified in the yeah. So, but they are, they are freshwaters and they are dolphins and they are pink colored. I found this out last night. <laughs> Just wanted to throw that in. Why there. did you find that out last night? <laughs> well, you guys are all watching Game of Thrones. I'm playing Tomb Raider. Oh. I accidentally minimized. Let's see. Uh, yeah, let me look up this Lycan guy. 
see if I can find out what's going on here. Just wanted to throw the pink dolphins in there. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so which one of these would I do for an internet here? Uh, just pick a make a blank tab here. Okay, you fed uh, Lycan, King of Arcadia, most yeah, popular it, version of the myth, tested Zeus's omniscience by serving him the roasted f- flesh of Lycan's own son, Nictimus, or Nictimus, wow. in order to That's see whether Zeus was truly all-knowing. In return for these gruesome deeds, Zeus transformed Lycan into a wolf along with his offspring while, while Nictimus was restored to life. So he was a culture hero believed to have founded the city Lycosura, established the cult of Zeus. That's uh, Wikipedia stuff there. Okay, so lichen, and that's where the word lycanthropy comes from, right. which is werewolfery. So it goes back to that myth. That's awesome. Ah. Now, how is, let me see, how is that connected again? Somehow is that connected back with the myth of Romulus and Remus? That I don't know. <clears throat> Because uh, Romulus and Remus were Roman, right? That, that was a Roman yes, myth. that was the founding of Rome. Yeah. So was Rome the... Who was the one that turned them into wolves? Zeus. Okay, yeah. So they would have been, they would have been sort of like... Jupiter. Enemies of Zeus, maybe? Let's see. Raised by Zeus's enemy? I don't know. Let me look it up. You know, Mike is doing something here. Mike's on to something here. Wait, cosmic chaos. What are you saying here? Where are you? I'm going to unmute you. Yeah, yeah, you got you to gotta say that. <laughs> Go ahead, you're on. Let's hear it. Can you guys hear me? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I was just uh, Googling around looking for an article that related wolves and dolphins because that piqued my interest. And I found a couple that it looks like instead of wolves having evolved from dolphins from sea to land it's believed that it may have actually gone the other direction from land to sea due to their uh, the arrangement of their spinal cord and that they uh, are carnivorous and eat fish that's what i found but i'm still looking so don't take it as gospel well wow, that's crazy that's what i've heard as well i didn't want to go there because it's you know but yeah that's what i've heard as well <laughs> cool wow that dolphins are actually wolves. <laughs> well, and there are not, not wolves, but evolved <laughs> from a common ancestor. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> I wrote that last week. So apparently, one subbranch of Brandon's aquatic wolves then went back permanently. Right? Is that is that of how I'm reading this? Yeah, that they that the, and their their webbed paws then turned into fins. I guess that that's the happened? idea. So it was saying that the. That it went from dog or wolves to dolphins? Is that what, is that what you said? Yeah. That, that's, that's what I'm finding online. But maybe there was just a certain population that branched off and didn't go fully aquatic, but they still evolved webbed feet. The sea wolves that I was talking about swim uh, off the coast of uh, British Columbia, I think, and uh, they'll okay. swim five and six miles Um so they're they're definitely an aquatic dog. Right, right. Cool. I'll keep looking around. I was looking for an article that referenced that, so I'll keep looking. So clearly the pink dolphins from uh, in the Amazon are from poodles, right? Those are the dogs that turn into pink <laughs> dolphins. Cause. Okay, so I put in uh, what Brandon just said, 
sea, sea wolves, and immediately it comes up, uh, the extraordinary sea wolves, and then with a caption here, the, the coastal wolves have an extraordinary ability to swim across miles between islands. And then there's actually a photograph. Look at this, Mike. Look at this. Cool. There, there's a sea wolf. Hmm. Now that is, you see, because I didn't know anything about any of this before tonight. So this is cool. This is very cool. And look at here. Here he is eating a fish. The sea wolves living wild in the Great Bear Rainforest. So it's a book about the sea wolves. Amazing. Amazing. Man, can you imagine you like you get shipwrecked somewhere out there, you're swimming, you're surviving the sharks and everything, and then a wolf comes up and just takes a bite of you? That was- <laughs> well, that would be, you know, that would be almost as ironic as, you remember the guy, what, three, four, five years ago in Florida at night? Remember, he was sleeping in his bed. You heard about this poor guy, and a sinkhole opened up under his house. Oh, yeah. Oh, and man. His, and his bed fell into the sinkhole, and they were never found him again. Yeah. I mean, how bizarre, when you think about that, yeah. would that be? What an, I mean, who could even make up something like that? Right. Imagine you're sleeping in your bed, and then the next thing you know, you're being swallowed up by the earth. <laughs> I just, I, I, that always struck me as really one of the most ironic ways to die and also sounds like myth right it, it has it that does. quality of, of it being like s- urban legend yeah but it really happened right but you can see how like the you get phrases like you know they were the, the earth swallowed it up or whatever in these stories and suddenly right it makes, yeah exactly so i'm gonna pull up some maps here all right great uh Let's see, Mike, I'll get uh, Google Earth over on this side, or what can we just do Google Maps, I guess? <laughs> um, uh, let's new see. tab. I'll just do a new tab. Um, Google Maps. Enter. I think Graham had to go, but he said... I'm telling you guys, we had a debate about Wolfins on Grimerica, and Darren was all in. <laughs> Wait, what's that? What, what about Darren? Darren was all in on the Wolfins on Grimerica. He said they had a debate oh. about it, and he was all in. He was oh, all was in he on debating? The, the Wolfins. The Wolf Dolphins. Oh. Oh, okay, got it. Okay. <laughs> Let me see where I get down here. There we go. May severity. Right. I think you're a little no. too far from your too mic because, like, when you lean forward, it's not through. Because it, it, I'm watching when it switches the screen. Okay. It switches the screen when yeah some like sufficient audio comes from our end and it's not right. How about now? Okay, now I'm going to do share screen right here, like this, and then. Screen two or this one here? So when Randall was uh, surfing Google Earth before, was everybody able to follow that rule? It's like, Randall, you seem like a super pro when it comes to zooming in and zooming out and surfing around on on, uh, Google Earth. And the screen sharing for us, and of course we may not have the greatest internet connection, and that may be the problem, but it didn't seem to 
we seem to be behind on where you were going, so try to try to moderate your zooming in and zooming out so that we can all catch up. Okay, I, I, I'm there now. All right, um, cool. I was, yeah. Can we see this, Mesa Verde? We yes. see it. Okay, cool. The green table. Yeah, so it's basically a plateau, and it slopes to the south. It's got a gentle slope to the south, about uh, not more than a few feet per mile. Uh, oh, let's see. A little, yeah, probably, let's see. Yeah, it's got a gentle slope. It's about a one-degree slope, right? So basically, your water flow is from north to south. And you can see here that what we're looking at is there's a huge uh, erosional swath right here that wraps around from the north to the to the northwest to the north side over here. And it's been truncated. It's been sheared off. You can see the northern edge of the plateau has been sheared off right here. And I'm going to zoom in. You can kind of see what I'm talking about all right in here. So you basically had water flow coming from the north, and it created this labyrinth of these canyons here. And it flowed down all through these canyons. And you see there's a lot of extinct cataracts in here. You see all of these things? These are cataracts. So initially, water would have been heating like a sheet flood over the surface of this of the plateau. And as it did so, the, the plateau is mostly sandstones and shales with some coal beds lying in it. So it was pretty, pretty vulnerable to uh, extreme erosional events. So basically what you had was... Uh, huge amounts of, of, of water in a sheet flood going over the plateau, north to south, and then it began to dissect this whole maze of, of interconnected canyons and valleys that you see here. And this was, I'm going to guess, with, with a pretty educated guess, that the last episode of erosion would have been um, probably during that younger driest bracket, you know, when somewhere between 14.6 and 11.6 in that 2,000-year period, when the, when the great ice sheets were melting down, you might have had two or three episodes of major flooding in the southwest. Um, and those two or three episodes may have done a lot of this work that you see right here. So we're going to be looking at some of that in the field. Um, as you can see, there are roads going through here. So we're going to take some drives through this exploring, and we're going to be looking at a lot of overlooks, and we'll be looking at the canyons, the, the geological structure of the canyons, and then how these the, the, the Mesa Verdean culture, who was part of the Chacoan culture, came in and utilized this pre-existing geological architecture to create their civilization. That's fascinating. It looks very Mandelbrot. Mike just said it looks very Mandelbrot, and it, and it really it does. <laughs> and that's the nature of, of a, a water erosion as well, because it's it's... It has that fractal property to it that, you know, see, we can look at this at one scale, but when you zoom in, it, the resolution doesn't allow us to zoom in closer. But if we were able to, we would see even smaller versions of these cataract features leading into these major ones that we see here. But see, these are these are cataracts, very much like we would see um, cataract formations up in the Channel Scablands or like you might see at Niagara Falls except that now there's no water running here. So um, it's scale invariant, right? It's scale invariant. Yeah. And then the Mancos river comes and crosses down this way. And then all of this material here is all spread out. Huge volumes of this material fill all of these valleys here. All of these valleys are filled with hundreds of feet of sediment that was swept out 
from this area up here. So see, before all of these flooding events, you have to imagine that this, this tableland here was much more extensive to the north. And you can see right here where it's been truncated. I'm gonna go over to the satellite view and I'm gonna put it in 3D. Ooh. All right, so. Yeah, so these we'll be we'll be exploring on these roads right here. So like here's a good example. Um, there's cliff palaces right down here in this cliff, and over here is the Sun Temple, which we're going to visit. Now the Sun Temple is a really beautiful example of a structure, masonry structure built or at with astronomical orientation and using sacred geometry. So what we would do is we'll have like a briefing the night before on the things we're gonna look at out here in Mesa Verde, and I'll include slides of the sun temple so you can understand the geometry and the astronomy. And then the next day we'll go out and we'll be here at the sun temple. And if they allow us to get in to the cliff palace, that's one of the biggest of the cliff dwellings. It'll be fun to go around and actually go down into it. I don't know if they're letting us or not. Um, if not, we'd have to basically we see it from the opposite side of the of the chasm here, of the opposite side of the cliff, um, which which would be from the yeah. Okay, check this out, guys. Here's the Sun Temple. Ooh, man, oh, isn't that cool? Yeah, yeah. And there's like a perfect golden rectangle in here. Yeah, I'll I'll have slides to show you so you can see the geometry here. Why do they call it a Sun Temple? Because it's oriented to the motions of the sun the movement of the sun throughout the course of the year. So if it's got an equinoctial and a solstitial alignments, you know, it, it may have been used for other things, but it has the ability to track the sun. And I'll, I'll, I'll show you how that works. Um, so, so we'll visit that if you want to. Yes. Oh, yes. That's the <laughs> that I put on the list. Loving every minute of it. <laughs> on the other side, let's see, can we see it here? Yeah. So the cliff palace is on the other side. Let's see. Here is the is there oh, a trail man. Going down there. Cliff. Yeah, I can see them. Okay. There's an overlook here. So I'm not sure if we're going to be if if we can get down in there. If we can, it'd be fun to go down there because that's one of the largest of the of the cliff dwellings. But if not, then what we would do is we would view it from this side. We but you can actually see it better. If we're on this side, you can't see it because we're on the top of the cliff and it's overhanging. The, the structure below. It looks like the cliff dwellings are oriented perpendicular to what the quote unquote sun temple would be. I don't know. I'm assuming that the sun temple. Oh, I see what you're saying. Well, <laughs> see, the cliff dwelling down here is going to be oriented according to the to the pre-existing erosion and undercutting of the sandstone rock. And see, the sun temple is up here on the up on the plateau surface. Right. So it's free to orient, and, and from down here. In the, in the cliff palace, you can't see the horizon. So in order to have a sun calendar or a sun temple work, you have to be able to see the horizon. So so that's what this, the purpose of this. So clearly it was ceremonial, but it was also astronomical. People didn't live there. And in most of these, these Kiva structures like this, people didn't didn't actually live there. Well, they I think if they, if they won't let us down in there, Brandon can come up with a dis distraction while we all sneak down in there. Right, Brandon? You can do that. <laughs> you, you're cool with that, right, Brandon? And, and I mean, if, if need to, you know, we can take up fund to bail you out of jail. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll bail you out, bro. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll take up a collection to 
I mean, it may not be right away, but, you know, certainly within a month or two. Guys are talking you know, like crowdfunding. Ready to sacrifice. <laughs> okay. That's what we like to hear, Brad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That shows your dedication and your commitment. Yeah, there are several sites that are part of guided tours only, and that's one of them. So we're not we're not set up to be part of a guided tour. Okay, tell them we are already a guided tour. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We, we come with our own guide. So we're... Well, look, just tell them Brandon's with us. <laughs> just, that's all you got to do. I'll call ahead. Okay, so there, um, Slowboat's asking, how old is that Sun Temple? What's the date? Do they give a date on it? I'm guessing it's about 1,000 to 1,200 years old. I don't know if any real precise dating has been done, but but if it's consistent with some of the other um, structures in the area, it's probably 1,000 years old, although um, it could be older than that. I think we always need to be open to, to the idea that some of these things are going to be a lot older than the conventional dating. Um I, I will certainly be finding that out. And if nothing else, once we get there, you know, when we go into the place, there is a, um, yeah, we'll probably visit this. I think we need to stop here anyway, the uh, Mesa Verde Visitors, Visitor and Research Center. So, if you know, if you want, you know, bring a little cash if you want to pick up some books or maps or anything uh, at some of these places. Um, but I'm sure they'll have all the information we'll need on Mesa Verde right here. Um, and if we click on this, let's see, we can, yeah, so here it's oh, yeah. kind of a nice building right there. That's, so this is, this is the entrance to the park that we would be coming from because we'll be coming from the north side, the northeast side, uh, Durango. Um, and then there is Park Point, which is, uh, let's see if we can find here the knife edge. We'll probably stop here because it's going to be. Uh, it just was the entrance. So this this is like that northern edge. Remember, I showed you on the map where I said it was truncated, where it had been sheared off. This is what it looks like. So there's a couple of overlooks where we can actually look down at this shearing off that happened and look down into the into the valley where the where the town of Mancos now is, and then um, that's the knife edge, and then Park Point is a great over going to be a great overlook where we can really get the lay of the land as we can look all the way over to the continental divide and you can again you see here this is this is the edge of the plateau the edge of the green table right here oh yeah and then and from here we go south so we go down south across the, the table land oh man i can't wait mm. You know, there's there's something I can't even explain or put my finger on. But when you're out and you you, you know you're in this kind of a because you know, most people, especially here in the east, you know, like where I live here, you know, it's it's the same thing. You know, you 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 barely see the sky. You know, people live in town, urban areas. You know, so the canyons people see in their daily lives are buildings and the walls of buildings, and it's amazing how many urban people just never really see the sky or never see a vista and get the sense of how incredibly vast and expansive this, this world is. But when you, when you get out and you spend a day or a week, you know, or a couple of weeks out in these kinds of landscapes, 
it does something to your consciousness. Your consciousness expands to fill this space. Urban areas, your consciousness kind of does this, you know, the, the, the routine. It just, and that's why I think it's very important that, that more and more people are, um, have these kinds of experiences because I can tell you already the difference between me growing up in the 50s and 60s and so many of the young people growing up now. You know, I grew up in rural Minnesota where big, vast skies and vast distances were kind of the normal part of playing outside, you know. But, I mean, now there's millions of kids who just never, who you know, who don't know what this is. And they don't know what it is to be out and understand, you know, the world, how, how it came to be and how miraculous it really is. Um, that's something I think is profoundly important that needs to happen in the next decade or two because... A lot of a lot of kids are really susceptible to a lot of this brainwashing that's really going down now, um, which is sad to say. There's a lot of brainwashing in public schools right now to get kids to to accept a certain paradigm of reality, which yeah. I'm afraid is not. It's a manufactured paradigm. Yeah. Hey, Randall, you know? uh, Chris, Chrissy and Philip have a question again about the Sun Temple. They are asking sure. if we know they were worship people were worshiping there, or could it have been more like a university? Or a laboratory type of thing? Well, I, I think it was probably, I think two things. It was, would have been like a cer- ceremonial, but also like an observatory. It was would have been used as an observatory. And no doubt the, the astronomical observations that they were making were tied in with their whole religious and spiritual view of the world and would have been part of their ceremony. In other words, be like if we were going to go to a, you know, an observatory and look through telescopes, but we made it part. And, you know, think of this way. Think of you've got a, an observatory, like here in, in, in Decatur, we've got the uh, Fern Bank, and it's a observatory and planetarium, and we go there regularly to, to look at celestial events. If there's a, you know, a, 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 you know, the last time I was there, we were looking at the Saturnian rings and the Jovian moons and things like that, right? Well, now imagine that you take that, but you merge it, you fuse that with a ceremonial, almost like taking science and religion and fusing them together into one experience. So you go to church on Sunday morning, but instead of just listening to a preacher, you go and you make these observations of the rising of the sun, the setting of the sun, the, the motion of the moon throughout the course of its cycles. And then you begin to become tuned in to these cosmic cycles. And then those cosmic cycles and those rhythms of nature become the way you begin to organize your whole social and cultural life around those rhythms of nature. And it's those rhythms of nature that basically every earlier culture, every archaic society was immersed into those rhythms. And it made it was an integral part of their day-to-day life individually, but also part of their collective life as a culture. And it was incorporated in as part of their religion, see? So... There, see, the thing is, is we, in our modern way of thinking, we separate, here's religion, you go to church, right? And here you, you go to an a, observatory to look in a telescope and look at the stars, or you go into a laboratory, or or, or even if you go out into, into the nature and you study the, 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 the biosphere, you study the hydrosphere, you study the glaciers on the rivers, or you study geology, well... Okay, so that's considered to be science, and so that's that department, that domain. And then over here you have the domain of religion and spirituality, and you read sacred books and things like that, but never the twain meet. See, that's our modern idiom. In ancient times, it was different. 
there was no distinction between one's spiritual outlook onto the world and the universe and um, the, the exercise of one's reason, and, and which is basically what science is. The science is a combination of deductive and inductive reasoning, right? So I guess the answer to the question then is it was both. It, it was in itself probably a t you could think of it as a teaching instrument. So when you're being initiated into the, into the uh, let's say, into the traditions of the society, of the culture, whether it was shamanic or spiritual or whatever, you're brought into this. And part of it is you're, you're the, 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 um, the cycles and the periodicities and the patterns of the sacred world are revealed to you piece by piece. So, you know, you take a kid out and, for example, here's something really simple to do. Find a high prominence. And every go out there every day for a month, right? And time it so that you watch the rising and the setting of the moon. And spend a few hours out there watching the moon, what happens as the moon rises and sets throughout the course of one month, through one uh, revolution about the Earth. And what that'll do is it'll reveal a whole map of the night sky because you can now use the moon as sort of like a great object pointer it's like my cursor the moon is the cursor and it's moving through the celestial sphere you can see it defining the the the, the belt of the ecliptic right you can see that and, and so then once you get the belt of the ecliptic and the 12 signs of the zodiac you can branch out from there then you link that up with well in the northern hemisphere with the north celestial pole and with polaris and then you can gradually get a whole map of the night sky in your brain so that and, and, of course, to archaic cultures, having that map of the night sky was critical to being able to, to, to migrate, to navigate, to travel, all of those things, because that's how they did. They navigated by the stars. So you can think, if you've got, if you've got this map in your head, right, and you know the, 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 the celestial motions of the object. But see, the celestial motions was part of a much longer-term um, model of of the um, endurance of culture and civilization because they knew that nature was cyclical and th and that's the thing that that this that this idea of these long-term observations you know which, which seemed um, fantastical to modern science no, yet nonetheless it does appear that there were times you know where, where you had a, a tradition that was handed down for a thousand or five thousand years, and really, when we look at some of the even some of the Native American traditions about uh, about great floods, and we know that those floods happened in North America eleven thousand, twelve thousand years ago, you used to try to explain it away by saying, "Oh, well, they heard uh, accounts of floods from uh, missionaries. They they didn't make those up." But no, the evidence shows clearly that these stories were being told as part of the traditions of Native American tribes, and they were being told when the very first white explorers encountered those tribes, right? So what it's suggesting is, yeah, really, there have been traditions that have been handed down for 10,000 years. But how do you get that? See, the Vedas make clear that there were traditions in ancient India that lasted, there were, that were, there were schools of ast astronomy that made observations over thousands of years and handed that information down. And it was the, it was the purpose of certain dedicated monks to preserve that information and hand it on to each generation who would continue to uh, improve it and refine it by making more observations. And eventually you had this whole corpus of, of very detailed astronomical knowledge. 
But what was the practical use? Well, on a day-to-day basis, obviously, it's the, the rhythms of nature are integral to the survival of an agricultural society, right? Now, on the other hand, the rhythms of nature on the larger scale tells us about the the, 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 the patterns and, and proportions and uh, the timing, the timing of the events that could completely de- disrupt or destabilize an established order of nature. And see, and that's the thing that we're working with here is that there is evidence overwhelming now, and it comes from multiple sources. It comes from hard science, which has been looking at multiple proxies over, you know, over the last century or two, and now has this incredible wealth of data showing that there are cyclical changes in the natural order that are extremely powerful, right? Now, on the other hand, we get, we've got these inherited archaic traditions that are telling us the same thing, just with using different terminology, but it's the same thing. And what it's telling us is that this, this equanimity that we have been enjoying for most of the Holocene with some significant interruptions um, is only a temporary thing. And that just as species will rise and endure and proliferate in between the great catastrophes, these, these, these transition zones within the natural order, same with civilizations. They arise, they, they prosper, they expand and grow and proliferate until the order of nature shifts on them. And if they can adapt, they endure. If they don't adapt, they become extinct. The, a, recent, a, a good example in history of that was the Norse colonies in Greenland that thrived there for 400 and some years during the, the medieval warm period. Right. And they were farming on the west coast of Greenland, where it's now permafrost. But when when the Little Ice Age, the first waves of the Little Ice Age came on in the late 1200s and early 1300s, they did not adapt. They were too bureaucratic in their in their structure there. They had a whole very strict religious hierarchy that assigned, um, you know, it, it was almost it was almost a um, very cliquish. And, and they looked down upon the natives. Who, who were actually very flexible and very adaptable. But so there are many stories like that. And, and so that really comes down to, you know, has implications for our modern society. Are we going to be adaptable? And here, here's the thing, because we can do, no matter what we do to try to control climate change by controlling carbon dioxide emissions, there are too many other variables in the equation of global change. And what will happen is those other variables are actually much more powerful than carbon dioxide in in some cases. Um, And so we need to be looking at the big picture and not narrowing it down to saying, oh, it's all carbon dioxide. And it's all carbon dioxide and we can blame it all. And the reason we're blaming it all on carbon dioxide is because humans are increasing the amount of carbon dioxide. And, And the implication of that is that the activities of humans now need to be controlled and constrained and restricted and 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 so forth because if not we're going to increase the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and it's going to create a climate crisis which supposedly we're in right now but what they're doing is ignoring the sun they're ignoring cosmic changes in the cosmic environment which we now know happen without any doubt we know that happens um changes in earth's geomagnetic field um Changes in ocean circulation and atmospheric circulation that are totally natural. I mean, the list goes on and on. And there are many factors interacting together, which causes global change. It was not carbon dioxide that caused the planet to go into an ice age or come out of an ice age. How how could it be possible that half of North America 
12,000 to 15,000 years ago had a an environment like that of the South Pole. I mean, how, think about that. How, yeah. can you, how is it possible that you could have a mile or two mile thick of ice sheet covering over 6 million square miles of the northern hemisphere that's now completely deglaciated? And how do you get rid of those glaciers in a few thousand years? See, we don't understand that yet. That's what I keep saying over and over and over again. We don't understand the big changes. So how can we be so concerned, so convinced we understand the little change? Because it's obvious that much more powerful forces have, have worked. And we're going to see the handiwork of some of those powerful forces. I'm showing some of those to you right here on Mesa Verde. That dissection of Mesa Verde is the imprint of forces way beyond, forces of erosion and sedimentation, orders of magnitude more powerful than are now operational on that plateau. And that is just like many, many other places around the world, you see. So we're going to be seeing some of that firsthand. And interestingly, we're going to see a juxtaposition because on the one hand, we're going to be looking at a world that was in effect erased, right? It was recarved. It was refaced. It, and in the process, the pre-existing landscape doesn't exist anymore. The landscape that existed here 15 or 20,000 years ago doesn't exist anymore, right? And we're going to see this juxtaposition of an extinct culture onto an extinct landscape. So it's going to be very fascinating, I think, and, and possibly eye-opening. And then perhaps one of our future um, get-togethers, like maybe next summer, we'll do, we'll do the Channel Scablands area up in Washington. And All right. Montana, and that'll, that'll be just killer. That, that'll, that we, yeah, we'll probably have at least several people who will have to scrape up and <laughs> – on, on, um, we'll have to well, make. Let me jump backwards there, since you brought up Mesa Verde again. Some I saw somebody had put up a question across the bottom. Was every group going to get to go oh, yeah. to Mesa Verde? So I just want to confirm that all three groups were spending a day trip to Mesa Verde. So yes, everybody, everybody will get to go to Mesa Verde. Now there may be a different stop, uh, highlighted awesome stop on the way. Um, that might be equally awesome that different groups go to. But, yeah, everybody will go to Mesa Verde. I just wanted to cover that little question I saw come across. And we're going to bring a bomb squad and a containment, a bomb containment thing for everybody's mind-blowing <laughs> mind experience. Yeah, we need to have containment. <laughs> yes, uh, well, yeah, I did, I did put that uh, on the list. <laughs> containment canister for mind explosions. <laughs> Yeah, that is that's really awesome. Yeah, I think we're going to have a good time. Absolutely. Uh, this is this is um this is a little off the subject you were just talking about. But Randall, have you ever looked into the the like artifacts that have been found inside of coal? Have you ever looked into any no. of that stuff? No? I've heard of that, and I know that um, you know forbidden archaeology gets into a lot of that. Yeah, I have no I have no thought on that. Okay, it, 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 you know. Yeah, I, I don't have a thought on that. I, okay. One of the things I, I would like to look into, you know, I mean, what I do know is that there is pretty solid evidence, though very solid evidence of modern humans that's pushing 200,000 years. Yeah. To go 2 million or 20 million years is stretching it. Yeah. And, and I really have to see a very convincing body of evidence to push it back that far but so wouldn't but, the objects in coal couldn't that just just suggest instead that the coal is not that old instead of 
Well, it could, to me, it would, could possibly suggest the fact that given that the nature and the extent and how extreme some of the upheavals are, I mean, it could yeah. be in one epoch, you've got something exposed and then 10,000, 20,000 years later, it's completely buried. Right. The, so, and, and considering, yeah, so if you've got, you know, thousands of artifacts laying on a landscape and then that landscape gets buried and then there's a seismic event or, uh, uh, you know, overthrust fault, that could be a way, you know, overthrust fault is this, where you've got one plate riding up over the other one, right? One rock mass riding up over the other one. So what happens then is typically in geology, you've got your column gets older as you go down. This is the succession, right? That's the normal for, for a sedimentary rock column. But in the case of, of an overthrust, you see what happens. Like, let's say, let's say this is a, a rock mass that's a million years of accumulation and it rides up over. Well, now what you're going to have is older rocks on top of younger rocks. Yeah. Right. Coal actually might be produced much quicker than, you know, it, basically coal is produced under heat and pressure, right? And if you take a large biomass and you, you subject it to the heat and pressure of a major tectonic event, you might have, I think, a very, uh, a major coal seam produced in a very short period of time. And in fact, when you look at the compression ratios of coal, this is very interesting. When you go from a, a low grade, well, we started peat, and then you can go from different grades of peat into the low-grade lignite coals, then up to the to the really high-grade anthracite coals. But what's in between there, what you have is compaction ratios. So, in other words, if you want uh, 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 one foot of peat, you'd maybe take, you'd start out with, say, uh, on the order of 10 feet of plant material, and you'd compress it down to that one foot. Well, now if you want a, a 10, if you want, uh, let's say, a foot of low-grade lignite coal, you take 10 feet of peat and you crush it down to one foot. And then you take that low grade coal and you go up to say to a medium grade coal, same thing, you have a compression or a compaction ratio. So by the time you get up to um, anthracite coal, you're looking at an original biomass, I mean, that could be for every foot in the coal seam, you've got an original mass of bi biomass, a thickness of biomass that could be hundreds of, hundreds of times greater. Well, then you got to realize, like, if you start out and you've got a coal seam that's 200 feet thick and you've got to do a 10 to 1 compaction ratio over four or five orders of magnitude, you can see what we're talking about. Now, we're talking about a hell of a lot of biomass that has to be accumulated and then subjected to heat and pressure just to create that coal seam, you see. So the very existence of coal, to me, suggests the probability of these great disrupting events, geologically disrupting events, also that would be disrupting the biosphere, that would be that would be part of a process that was completely altering the existing landscape. And in those kind of catastrophic scenarios, once you realize, you know, and, and, and for example, if you have a major compression and you have a, a, an anticline built bending up like this, sometimes it can bend up like this, picture my arms are rock, compression, right? forms an anticline, and then the anticline can tilt over like this, you see, and actually fold over on itself. So once again, now, you get this complete disruption and dislocation or an overturning of the layers. So now you've got 
older layers on top of younger layers. See, so my knowing those kind of scenarios would be my first thought. Well, if you actually did find a, a, a indisputably human artifact in a coal seam, I would want to look at the larger geological context of that coal seam before I said, okay, you know, may, maybe that coal seam isn't as old as we thought, or maybe it is that old, but there may have been a time when it was exposed. I don't know. I would have to look at each individual case. But at this point, nothing that I am exploring or theorizing on requires us to be older than 150 to 200,000 years. Right. <clears throat> That's enough time for me right now to work. It's like I basically say, you know, this, the scope of my thinking, you know, because there's so much. The universe is so grand that I have deliberately decided to limit the scope of my thinking to the metagalactic scale. <laughs> So, that's kind of small. You're, I think you're limiting yourself there yeah. too much. Well, I realize that, but you know, I, I've only presumably only got another fifty or to hundred years of life. So, <laughs> what? Come on, you got how old was Noah before he died? Well, okay, well, he was about nine hundred and fifty. Yeah, yeah, you got plenty of time, man. You should be all right. Yeah, no, okay. <laughs> so on I the, feel better. I feel better now. <laughs> On the uh, the folding of the layers and the burning of the biomass, like that, the the burn papers by Allen and West et al. Whatever. That's what it made me yeah. think of. Like, I don't remember what the percentage was. Like ninety percent of the biomass on the planet at that time went up in flames. And if there was some impact or it caused volcanism or whatever tectonic plates to shift, I was imagining like all of that stuff getting folded under other layers and still burning today, basically turning into coal. Yeah. You think it can happen yeah, that quickly? I, I, possibly. You know, I'm not an expert on the, the or, origins of coal, but I do know that, that it's very difficult to explain the existence of coal within strictly gradualist models. It, it, it's, in fact, it's really almost impossible to explain the existence of coal through gradualistic models. Um, and, and you brought up impact. That's a good point, because if you've got an impact, pictures, boom, then you've got this. Oh, right. Right. So you've got overturning there. Yeah, the excavation. It's yeah, Coming out, falling back down as a blanket surrounding the impact site. Yeah, I mean, like one of the, if you watch that, uh, what is it called? Primitive Technology? The YouTube channel or whatever, and what what you know, he makes coal by he he basically builds a little mud hut. He sets up, he gets a whole bunch of little uh, logs. He gets them burning, and then he covers them in wet mud and waits for two hours. Right. So basically, that's how you make coal. Like, and when he un when he opens it all up, they're still hot, but the because they've been restricted with oxygen or whatever, they just sort of smoldered, and now they're perfect little charcoal bricks. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, like, if you if you think about making coal, it's like you set the entire forest on fire and then you cover it in wet mud, and that's, that's you know. See, yeah, yeah. So there we are. We're, we're yeah, right. A catastrophic scenario that could that could explain rapid creation of coal seams. That's yeah, yeah. So and so, I find it to be you know. I mean, I don't. I agree with you on the whole. Like, I have a problem where where somebody's saying, well, if you find a gold chain stuck in a piece of coal that's supposed to be 150 million years old, well, we're, no one's saying the the human race is 150 million years old, but that may mean that coal seam is not 150 million years old. Is my idea? Right. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I would have to really see the geological context. Yeah. Of, and you know, first of all, okay, is it a gold chain or is it something that just looks like a gold chain? 
is right. it 150 million years old? Or, you know, I mean, there would be a lot of questions I would have to ask before I said, oh, yeah, that is a that is a human artifact and it's 150 million years old. And therefore, it proves that humans are around 150 million years. Yeah. Now, yeah. Would if, you it, do, if, it, if it has Snoop Dogg's initials on it. <laughs> <laughs> you got Snoop Dogg's Rolly in the in the. <laughs> But what uh, he's on to something here. We have skeletal <laughs> remains that, that are, you know, over 100,000 years old. So, you know, for, for making the argument that humans, that there is a deep history, you know, we don't need to go 150 million. We can go 150,000. Yeah. And we can actually make a pretty convincing case that, yeah, modern humans were around 150,000 years ago. What were they doing? Right. What were they right. doing for all of those millennia between then and now or between then and, say, you know, Egypt and Sumer and, and the Indus Valley and what we consider the, the dawn of modern civilization or civilization, the dawn of history, which is when we had writing and when we began to get a record, which basically is that period 4,500 to 5,000 years ago and really presumably began with cuneiform writing in the, in the Middle East. Yeah. I th- you know, I think in some context, like, uh, I've been fascinated with the forbidden archaeology artifacts for a long time. And, like, I think that stuff can be fossilized a lot faster than people think, too. I think that that may be part of the answers to those things. Like, okay, one of the things I was looking at was underneath the Temple Mount. I've got some feedback here. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We're losing about every third or fourth word. Okay. Okay. Oh, Kyle just took off. So, okay. So whenever Kyle leaves, then you start getting feedback. That's right. And then I can't do anything about it. <laughs> I sabotaged you. Like magnetically stabilizing force, his presence there. <laughs> do you still have feedback? You hear it? Okay. You, you hear back, everybody? Chips? No, I didn't do that. Oh, okay. After I, after I paid, then they let me... Uh, there we go. I have to close the share. Oh, close the share. Okay. okay. All right. How about now? Yeah. So, the like for instance, there's a under the Temple Mount. There are those enormous, enormous stone blocks they found down beneath it. Right. Some of the some of the basically the foundation stones of it. They look a lot like they came from Baalbek in Lebanon, but they have these square uh, holes in them that had these like like look like two by four inserts that were put in presumably to move them around and in some cases the two by fours are still stuck in those square holes but they are now uh petrified mm-hmm. that is a that's fast right i mean like the at least if you go with the standard model of when that place was built herod's time or whatever they think herod was the one that moved those blocks around i'm not sure if that's right but even if it was only six thousand years ago i mean like does something does wood petrify that quickly is that a known thing? That's my question, I guess, is what I'm getting yeah, at. Is yeah, it? well, you know, um, again, I think it depends on the, the pressure because basically what's happened in pressurized wood is you've replaced the cellulose with some kind of minerals. So that's generally assumed that it takes a long time, but I don't know. That's a good question. You know, maybe what this implying is that the blocks are much, much older. Yes. Right. 6,000. Maybe they're twenty or 30,000 years. That, that's uh, true. I'm not real sure. That's a good question. How long does, does it take to form petrified wood? Let's see. Um, <laughs> oh, 
now you got me wondering. Yeah, I'm just saying that, like, like looking through a whole bunch of stuff, reading Forbidden Archaeology or whatever, you come across these contexts of artifacts in positions where it either implies that they are incredibly old or that the place they're in is not as old as people think. And I think that... Uh, ah. You find it? Not yet. I'm getting there. Hey, we got Bill. Yeah, Bill. Petrified wood, literally meaning wood turned into stone, is the name given to a special type of fossilized remains of terrestrial vegetation. It is the result of a tree or tree-like plants having completely transitioned to the, to stone by the process of per-mineralization. That's exactly what I was talking about, where the cellulose is replaced by minerals, usually because it's in a fluidized form. All the organic materials have been replaced with minerals, mostly a silicate such as quartz, while retra- retaining the original structure of the stem tissue. Um, unlike other types of fossils, which are typically impressions or compressions, petrified wood is a three-dimensional representation of the original organic material. The petrifugio, the petrifaction process occurs underground when wood becomes buried under sediment or volcanic ash and is initially preserved due to a lack of oxygen, which inhibits aerobic decomposition. Mineral-laden water flowing through the covering material deposits minerals in the plant's cells. As the plant's lignin and cellulose decay, a stone mold forms in its place. The organic matter needs to become petrified before it decomposes completely. But then it says, the process lasts millions of years. But what does that mean? Does it mean that once it's petrified, it'll last for millions of years, obviously? <laughs> but does that imply that it takes millions of years for the petrifaction process to take place? Yeah. I've always, at least I've always seen it implied that, that petrified wood is very, very, very old. And that's what I'm saying. Like, so when you see it in context where you're like, okay, that doesn't seem like it can be that old. Like when it's in a block, for example, even if you say it's 30,000 years old, that's not old enough for it to be well petrified. I can tell you this much in my old carpentry days when we got into some of these old buildings and we had to work with some of this old heart heart pine that was a hundred years old it might as well have been fossil <laughs> petrified and we would burn up saw blades left and right you know we'd go through ten saw blades in a day trying to cut that stuff um, yeah so yeah, uh, Archer, I, I certainly can tell you 75 or 100 years wood gets a lot harder but of course that's nothing like you know, um, turning into stone. Yeah. Not being replaced by, by, by minerals. Um, yeah. Archer posted a thing just here on the chat window that said, uh, they have a method. Uh, now there's a laboratory method that can, um, petrify wood takes four or five days. But there's, so, duh. so if <laughs> yeah. we can do it in the laboratory, the question becomes, can nature do it that yeah, quick yeah. or, you know, I mean, can, yeah. maybe we can do it. If nature doesn't have to do it. If nature can do it in a thousand years or ten thousand years, that still is is very significant. Yes. You know, in other words, if we're looking at petrified wood, that's not a hundred million years old, but a thousand or ten thousand years, that's that's completely different. Right. So that was, I guess, that's the point I was getting to: is that like, in some cases, things are actually older than 
right? Like, in other words, what, like if you have something stuck in coal, then maybe the coal's not as old as people have thought it was due to uniformitarian ideas, right? And the same thing the other way around. So if you have if 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 wood can petrify a lot faster than they think it can, then in some cases things are younger, right? So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh. Okay, so now I'm looking at live science. It says, in Greek mythology, merely glancing at the ugly head of Medusa could turn the looker into stone. Right. Wood, the process is not so fast. (laughs) Petrified wood forms when fallen trees get washed down a river and buried under layers of mud, ash from volcanoes, and other materials. Sealed beneath this muck, deprives the rotting wood from oxygen, the necessary ingredients for decay as the wood's organic tissues slowly break down, the resulting voids in the tree are filled with minerals such as silica, the stuff of rocks. Of course, then it says over millions of years, these minerals crystallize. But I mean, I, I see, I don't know. See, this is the thing about there's so much new stuff to learn. You know, I would have to go in and look at what, what are they doing in the laboratory to produce petrified wood that quick? And then the next question would be, and we extrapolate from that to natural processes. If, if, if the laboratory can produce petrified wood in, what you said, five days, is it possible that nature could do it in a 1,000 or 10,000 years? But I found one thing here where it says from the University of Oklahoma. Um, and isn't Medusa just another way of saying, like a comet, you've got a snake and if you look at it, it turns you to stone, right? You, that's how you get fossils is by giant cataclysms. So I've always thought like Medusa is just a stand-in for the impactor. <laughs> Perhaps. And see, if you use the serpent metaphor for, for an impactor, yeah. a, a head with multiple serpents, that would almost suggest a fragmentation event. Oh, yeah. A single nucleus produces multiple nuclei. So from the University of Minnesota, I mean, of Oklahoma, it says the youngest petrified wood oh, in Oklahoma is in the is Miocene, which is from 25 to 5 million years old. What, but that's interesting that the Miocene, you know, which ended at 5 million, the Hemphillian mass extinction event, which was the last event in Earth history, extinction event on the scale of the terminal Pleistocene extinction of, of 11 to 12,000 years ago, was five dated at five million. So it that extinction event actually marks the line of demarcation from the Miocene to the Pliocene mm. five million years ago. So Brett so, say Brett's saying the the laboratory process is it basically hydrochloric acid for two days, then silica or titanium solution for another couple of days, then they air dry it, then it's placed in an argas, argon gas filled furnace and slowly heated to fourteen hundred degrees Celsius over a period of two hours, and then it's left to cool to room temperature in the argon gas, and that's how they, they make it. They fossil or they petrify it in six days, basically. So that doesn't sound so, like something nature couldn't do, right? Except for right, maybe the argon part. Right. <laughs> the argon could be... Uh, of course, this, nature this is only out the same thing that there may be five million-year-old petrified wood, but this is just in Oklahoma, so... Yeah. Um, I'd, have to, I'd have to spend some time looking here, but that's now an interesting... Here, here's uh, you got to be careful when you start looking at some of this that you're not getting into a creationist website. <laughs> yeah, don't get into those six K creationists, man. <laughs> oh man, that'll nah, man, that'll, that'll be the end of it right there. That'll be your, <laughs> be your undoing. 
<laughs> well, you know, I said last week or the week before we were talking about somebody asked about Grand Canyon, and I said, well, you've got two contrasting models that are extreme ends of the continuum. On the one end, you've got the one grain of sand, one drop of water at a time model of very slow, steady erosion of Grand Canyon. On the other end, you've got the creationist version that it's Noah's flood, one big flood, boom. And yeah, I've seen that on a lot of creationist websites and in their literature and stuff that it was Grand Canyon was created in Noah's flood. Whereas, But the reality, I think, is clearly right in the middle that you've got a succession of catastrophic floods over roughly two and a half million years that have led to the to the erosion of uh, Grand Canyon. Because for one thing, as we talked about, the Colorado Plateau, when it's when it's forming limestone layers, it's down at sea level or lower, right? It's a, it's a shallow marine environment. And, and now you've got limestone layers in the Colorado Plateau that are a mile and a mile and a half above sea level. So you had this raising up, this, this bulging upwards of what is now the Colorado Plateau. Well, when it's down here, see, it's not an erosional environment. It's a sedimentary environment. So it's receiving sediment that's being eroded from the higher areas of the of the land around it, right? So that's a sedimentary environment, typically. Okay, but as it uplifts, now see, it, it transitions from a sedimentary to an erosional environment. So the Colorado Plateau couldn't get start undergoing this, this extreme process of stripping of rock layers until it had been uplifted, right? Now, how do you strip those rock layers? Well, you have to have huge, huge volumes of water. Right. So likely the scenario that we're looking at now is you have the uplift of the plateau and sometimes subsequent to the uplift of the plateau, you now have a, a periodic succession of catastrophic hydrologic events that, that ultimately strip these huge masses of rock away from the plateau. Right. Now, when we look at one of the transitions from the, 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 the Pliocene to the Pleistocene, which is about two and a half million years ago, what is it that defines that transition? It's the beginning of this alternating succession of glacial interglacial ages, right? Now, how many times does that happen? Well, you know, I've seen various estimates. It's hard, it's hard to estimate the total number, maybe 10 or 12 or more glacial interglacial transitions. The problem is each time you have one transition, first the glaciers come on and they destroy you know, huge amounts of the pre-existing landscape. Then when the glaciers melt away, they destroy even more. So once you have this alternating succession, what complete what, what happens regularly is you have an existing landscape, an existing world that gets erased each cycle. So what happens after three or four cycles, you know, it's going to be very hard to find that pre-existing landscape. Elements of it do remain and it can, they can be identified. But see, that's the, that's the problem that we're faced with is you might have a catastrophe, but then the next catastrophe comes along and overprints the earlier ones and makes it harder to tease out the evidence that, yeah, this, this, there actually was a much earlier gigantic flood and maybe another one earlier than that, which certainly now seems to be um, supported by the evidence. But the point of Grand Canyon is, is that first you have to have the uplift, then you have to have yeah. the enough water to begin stripping these layers. And because, you know, when you're standing on Grand Canyon, I don't know how many of you guys have, have, have been to Grand Canyon and stood on the north or south rim looking looking down. You know, pretty damn impressive, right, when you're looking down 
almost a mile down at the river below you. But what you got to remember is that at one time there was another mile of rock over your head. It's been removed. It's been stripped away. You see, if that rock still existed, right, and you were looking into Grand Canyon, you'd be looking into a canyon that was two miles deep, not one mile deep. Wow. So huge, huge volumes of rock have been stripped off the Colorado Plateau. And I think that that really didn't begin until first, two things have to happen. First, the uplift, so that it becomes an erosional environment rather than depositional. And then you need to have to start having the, the extreme hydraulic hydrologic events that are of sufficient force and magnitude to begin stripping away those huge volumes of rock. So I would put the formation of Grand Canyon as being roughly two and a half million years old, that it's primarily the result of these episodic erosional events. Um, and in between those intense events, there is the, the slow continuum of erosion that we can actually observe and witness going on today. But those that slow gradualistic process that we see today has been regularly punctuated by these big events that have have resulted in in these massive erosional events that that, that we will see the evidence of when we're in in um, Mesa Verde when we're looking at that dissected tableland with all of those that labyrinthine interconnected channels um, in which the the Chacoan people built these these cliff dwellings we're going to be looking at the aftermath of catastrophic erosional events. Well, we got a, a question from Tom and Angela. Okay. Uh, unmute yourself there, buddy. Let me see if I can find it. Oh, he's got it. You got it. So, um, yeah, no, my question on there was, why does Colorado Plateau show extreme eroded features more than the rest of North America's eroded features? Um, like I was saying last week, um, I had this hypothesis that it was an impact site, and uh, you stated last week that it was. It, it, it could have been an ancient impact. It's possible. But, um, but the features inside that diameter is like super advanced um, erosion and um, working like a gla- as a glass blower. Um, I know when water comes into contact with superheated molten material, Last on my part, but in this case, it would be earth and the surface of an impact uh, structure. It would be molten and hot. And when you have all that water coming, washing over it, totally eroding and distorting the face of the map, you would have uh, the same effect, but super involved. Like basically, the idea would be that the land is boiling. And so this boiling effect would cause a super advanced eroded uh, landscape left behind. Um, that's based, That's the, what I based my research on. That's pretty much what it's looking to me as. And mm-hmm. I have a pretty good idea, you know, as a concept of it. But um, I understand what you're saying that is the uplift and it was once a seabed, but an asteroid can hit an ancient seabed uh, left under lots of sediment. Yeah. And, and here's the thing, one of the, you know, the assumption is, is that it's completely internal forces is driving plate tectonics, and it's plate tectonics that's causing uplift here, you know, depression there, the formation of basins, um, mountain ranges, and so on. I think that, you know, I look at a mountain range, and I don't necessarily see the results of a, of a slow uplift. I, I look at broken rocks that have been subjected to very little erosion, and, you know, I'm seeing yeah, something getting, that looks like it was fractured. 
uh, in relatively uh, recent in Earth history, like, um, it hasn't been subjected to. Because what happens is, if you break a rock, if you fracture a rock, or even if yeah, you if you quarry a block of rock, and you set it in the environment, what happens is it begins. You can have a nice rectilinear block with four corners, right? You set that in the environment. You begin to watch what happens as it erodes. The corners go first, right? Because they're the, the, the smallest. That's the easiest the and most susceptible to, to any yeah. kind of erosional forces, right? So what happens is the corners will gradually get rounded off. Now, if, if enough erosion over a long enough period of time, um, it'll just continue that process of rounding off. If you can actually take the block and put it into motion, then what will happen is you can start out with a rectilinear block, and at the end of being transported down current for some uh, given amount of distance, it can turn into a nice, round, spherical rock, right? But now what you're saying, you might have an impact, right? And, and it, it literally is hot enough to cause the rock to begin to boil. Now, in the, in the possible scenario at the end of the last ice age, one of the contending theories, and the one I personally lean towards, is a multiple impact event. And a multiple impact event could involve impacts into the ice sheet, impacts into the ocean, and impacts into the land. Now, if that happened, you're gonna, the, the outcome of that is going to be, like you were just saying, extremely complex. Yeah. You know, it's very complex and very difficult to sort out the, the, uh, these interacting forces. But, see... If what you're talking about, if you if you have an impact onto the land, and it it fluidizes the, the the rock, it's not it's going to stay hot for a considerable amount of time. If at the same time you have impacts into an ice sheet, what's going to happen there is that heat is going to vaporize huge amounts of ice, inject that ice into the stratosphere, and that that water that canopy of vapor is going to quickly begin to spread out. And then it will begin to rain back out. And when it rains out, <clears throat> it would produce extremely intense torrential rainfalls. So now here's a way where you could now combine exactly what you're talking about, is if you have simultaneous impacts, or you were suggesting the um, possibly electrical discharges last week, right? No, was no. I was, I was suggesting that there was multiple impacts, but as in, like, they, like you had a major asteroid and you had its moon uh, um, okay. traveling with it, and you had a few other fragments that would have created Behringer Crater and Upheaval Dome. And I believe its moon, right. the moon that uh, the asteroid had, I believe, created the LaSalle Mountains as its rim, and you would have the Canyonlands as, as the center. Um, well, that's, that's interesting, but, uh, you know, yeah, that's a, a, a theory that, or we'll say at this point a hypothesis that yeah. probably needs to, you know, obviously, you know, like Carl Sagan used to say, if you present something that's kind of quite outside the norm, what would he, how do you say it? Um, extraordinary, fire extraordinary proofs. And, you know, that for me, when I began to explore this, the, the, the whole idea of catastrophism back in the 70s and 80s, you know, Sagan was still alive, and I sort of took that as one of my, okay, well, I'm, you know, because I read some, you know, I read Velikovsky, and I read um, Charles Hapgood and a number of others who were some of these early catastrophists, like we talked about last week or the week before. Um, so I kind of took that as, as, as my modus operandi, that I was going to, you know, if I, you know, if I'm going to go talk about these gigantic floods up in the Pacific Northwest, um, I really wanted to see what they were all about. So I basically, you know, 
there's probably been somewhere around 200 papers written on those, and I think I've probably read all but maybe three or four of them. Um, and then took a dozen trips out there and traversed back and forth over a period of 20 years, you know, comparing what was being said, comparing to what I saw in the field. Each time I went, you know, it, it's kind of like a new learning experience, you know, learning to recognize the different mythologies. So you see a rock sitting in a field that, you you know, didn't come from there. You have to look at the lithology to know where did that rock come from? You know, it's a particular type of basalt or it's a particular, it's a shale rock or, or it's a, some type of a metamorphic rock, whatever it is. Where did it come from? See, so now you then, then ask, okay, what was the force that was able to transport that rock? 500 miles, you know, like Okotoks, the big rock, which I think I pulled up a picture of a few weeks ago, you know, out there um, just south of Calgary. We went down there. There's a cool picture on the uh, America website of our whole group walking away from that, from Okotoks, the big rock. Well, that's a, a, a metamorpho, metamorphic rock. It's a metamorphosed, uh, it's a, called a metacortzite. So it basically originated in Mount Robs. The transport distance from Mount Robson to where it is now is something like 400 miles, maybe even more. So you've got to come up with a scenario to transport an 18,000-ton rock from the west side of the Continental Divide over to the east side of the Continental Divide and dump it out on the prairie, right? So it's an extraordinary thing, but how do you explain it? So, yeah, you have to come up with a theory or a hypothesis, and then you test the hell out of that hypothesis. You come up with a hypothesis, and then you do every damn thing you can to disprove it. And if it doesn't, if it's still standing, it, it, and all your best efforts to disprove it, you can probably start putting your confidence in it. That's kind of how my approach is. So uh, using that approach, I've now, after 40 years, become convinced that, that cyclical catastrophes are, in fact, part of life on planet Earth. The origin of these catastrophes could be multiple. I think that the primary thing is impacts, but also the sun is undoubtedly, I think, uh, has a much more major role to play. I think impacts can induce climate changes. They can induce episodes of intense volcanism. They can induce uh, episodes of intense by uh, seismicity. They can induce fluctuations, if not altogether collapses of the magnetic field. And impacts have been associated with all of those things, the rising and falling of sea level. So I tend to think that there's a major exogenic driving force, right, which is outside. You know, and this is why I'm always saying we have to, if we're going to understand our situation here on Earth, we have to look at the big picture and realize that Earth is part of a much larger cosmic dynamic system. And a lot of these things, we're just beginning to, to understand how they work. So I, I think that, that the field is wide open to outrageous hypothesis, and what you're proposing is an outrageous hypothesis. But there's there's a valid place for outrageous hypotheses because, after all, our existence here on this earth is outrageous. It is. I mean, when you start looking at how that's how we began this conversation tonight. Really, it's absurd that we're sitting here having this conversation. And if yeah. everything wasn't exactly right, we we wouldn't be. Here having this conversation. All of my favorite hypotheses are outrageous, Tom. So that's, all of your favorite ones are are outrageous. They're, yeah, they're all my favorite ones are outrageous. And I like the I like the idea that, that your speciality has led you to look at this pattern in a in a completely new way. I would never would have thought of that. So I really think that's awesome. And, yeah, yeah, it's 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 one that uh, I work with every day. It's it's just a fact of the job. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm late. I look at it. It's got so many uh, features that I mean, you have 
I've looked at all kinds of different maps, and you've got volcanism <clears throat> in a circular pattern around this as a diameter. Um, you got the the Colorado Mountains, the Rockies were an, were a problem for me at one time. I was like, okay, all right, let's look into that. And they were absolutely they were young. I had no doubt in my mind that after an impact, it would shake the foundation and actually crack the crust and create the Rockies overnight. I mean, there, there's it is it, it may sound outrageous hypothesis for sure, um, but I guess that's where all the major discoveries kind of do pop up. Um, but uh, I, I mean, there's so much there. Um, you know, I've been looking at um, different areas where there's a geologist who worked for um, a, a biofuel company, or I think it was an oil company or something. And um, he did a little bit of work on the side. He's been finding shatter cones in areas that I um, was suggesting he would. Mm. And, uh, the Playa Lakes are areas uh, in like, there's this area in La Mesa, Texas. I, I talked to USGS, the um, United States Geological Survey. I pointed out something. I pointed out something that they did not recognize. Um, so they, they let me know that in an email. I have it. Oh, that's cool. uh, pointing out that Playa Lakes, the Playa Lakes kind of form a parallel pattern with dots. And to me, I was like, that seems to be like ejecta. That it, it, it went out quite a bit in uh, La Mesa, Texas. You can find it. Um, it's actually spread out quite a bit. There's a little bit in New Mexico as well. And as I looked at this other guy's, this other geologist's work, that's where he's actually found evidence of ejecta, uh, distal ejecta, he called it. His name is Tim. Tim so. McElvain, McEvan, McEvan, and uh, I'm, I'm in contact because when we go out on this trip, it's actually in the area there looking for samples. Hey, we're getting hold some on, hold feedback, on yeah, buddy. Feedback. Let, let us fix it real quick. Okay. Uh, that's feedback. Uh, Is everybody hearing everybody? that? Yeah. Wait, wait. Hold on a second. All right, try now. Okay, I unmute myself. There you go. Yeah. So let's. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to get. No. Nope. Uh, hopefully, I'll be able to speak with them uh, before I go on the trip. Okay. But, uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of different um, anomalies that are, you know, obviously I've been working on this for a while, so I, this is all my work. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm super excited for this trip. Yeah. <laughs> Good. <laughs> it's, it's awesome to be able to even be here right now and, and actually get some of this out to share it with you, Randall. Uh, actually, I, I tell people that, um, uh, you know, they say um, on the shoulders of giants and you and uh, Graham Hancock are certainly two of those giants, sir. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> totally agree with that, man. Thanks a lot. And uh, we're getting up on time here, everybody. So yeah. if there's anything left you want to say, Randall, go for it. I guess, nah, yeah, it is actually a little after 10, so I, I yep. do need to wrap it up in a few minutes. No, I, I guess I've got nothing else. Um, Brad and I are going to continue refining itineraries. Uh, the more we look at it, the, the more it's shaping up to be really, really interesting. Um, so, yeah, we've got sites over near the lodge uh, where we're going to be staying. We've got some sites there in Durango, near Durango, because Durango, you know, was there was a, a, a – 
about a 40-mile lobe of the San Juan ice cap that came down what is now the Animas River Valley, and it terminated right at Durango. So there are recessional moraines. Terminal moraines, hey, when the glacier comes down, it's moving this material. It gets as far as it's going to get, and then there, it builds a moraine in front of it. That's the terminal moraines. Then it moves back. Well, it moves back, but it's still acting like a conveyor belt. So it's carrying, even though the, the, the snout of the glacier has moved back, it's still this conveyor belt process that's moving this material forward. So it may move back a ways, stall for a little while, then move back further. But where it's stalled, it will re, it will build another moraine, and that is called the recessional moraine. So <clears throat> we're going to go to a place called the Lion's Den, which is an overlook onto the Animus River Valley. And hopefully we'll be able to visualize and see the, the, the terminal moraine and the recessional moraine from the, uh, the uh, Animus Lobe Glacier that came down that particular valley. And when it melted back, it formed a huge lake called Lake Durango. And what I'm trying to find now is if there's places where we could find visible shorelines of that lake, because that would be a a very interesting thing to be able to find the high water mark of Lake Durango, which was the big meltwater lake that was left over after the San Juan ice cap melted and undoubtedly contributed to the extreme weather events that would have in turn caused the erosion of the Green Table, Mesa Verde. So other than that, yeah, Brad and I are going to continue working on on, on uh, places to visit. Fantastic. I just want to throw in, you know, I think it's awesome that we can congregate in this forum um, from across the country and beyond possibly. And I want to thank Alan for arranging all this and, uh, you know, the Allen brothers for, for being hosts here. And it's just excellent to get all you together and, and that we're going to be able to see each other and have a lot of fun out there now. With those springs, so awesome, everybody! Hell yeah, this has been great. Yeah, can't wait to see you guys. It's like two weeks, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. coming up quick. Coming up quick. It's gonna be awesome. All right, we're gonna unmute everybody. All right, ready to prepare for chaos. Good night, everybody. <laughs> Good night. Good night, everyone. <laughs> two weeks. Uh. <laughs> That didn't work. There was so much feedback. I had to mute the uh, yeah, the live channel. <laughs> yeah, we tr- we. I like to try to unmute everyone at the end so we can all say goodbye to each other. But that time there was awful feedback. Anyway, that was the what is it? That was the 29th. Yep, that was contact at the cabin conference Zoom conference. We had 22 to 24 participants on that one. It was good. Uh, anyway, you guys can get a hold of us at brothers of the serpent at gmail.com. Our website is brothers of the serpent.com. You can comment there. You can check out the encyclopedia, the encyclopedia, the encyclopedia, encyclopedia. Yeah. Uh, the glossary, the glossary of terms. That's right. Uh, but the main thing I want to say is there's a few spots left. They were talking about this earlier. So there's a couple of spots left. So if people still, want, there's actually one camping spot left in the middle, the second trimester. So if anybody still wants to go, it's not too late. Yeah, two weeks, two weeks out. And uh, forgive me on the audio here. We only have two mic cables. One of them is buzzing like crazy. Um, couldn't do anything about it because we're not in the studio because we're at a better internet connection site. Yeah. We're in a cave. We're in a cave, <laughs> which has a better internet connection than our studio. So. <laughs> 
<laughs> I did put a sound gate on my channel, which is the one with the bad feed, bad buzz. Not too bad. Too bad. Is it? Don't like it. No. Anyway, uh, thanks to Grimerica. Yep. Thanks to Randall Carlson, Brad, Brad Young. Thanks to Charles Allen and everything. Yes. And we're once again honored to be a part of this. Yep. Little group and looking forward to the trip in two weeks. Yep. And thanks everybody for listening. Yep. I'm just gonna say yep again. Yep. Thanks for us for saying yep. Yep. <laughs> and, that, uh, I think we're done. Get your beers and smokes technology. That's right. Prepared. Beers and smokes technology owls. 